Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 6, 2014, and my guest is Darren Asimoglu, the Elizabeth and James Killian Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He has written with co-author James Robinson a very interesting paper, The Rise and Fall of General Laws of Capitalism. Darren, welcome back to EconTalk. Great to be here. Thanks very much for having me, Russ. Now, your paper is a critique of both, in, partic- in general, the whole idea that there are general laws, but in particular, you're taking aim at uh, Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century. He was recently a guest on EconTalk discussing the book. And at the heart of your critique is a failure on, uh, you claim, on Piketty's part to take account of institutions. Explain what you mean. You know, what I mean is that at some simple level, if you want to think about how economic outcomes, economic variables are determined, you know, if you go back to the way that we think about it, the way that we teach in our basic economics courses is that we talk about technology supply side of the, of the economy, if you want to think about it that way. Preference is the demand side. But there's always something that puts the two together. And in the basic, simple economic models, we have you know, perfectly competitive markets or some sort of Cournot or oligopoly. But of course, reality is much more complicated. Government actions, actions by powerful groups in society through non-market means, bargaining, coercion, rent-seeking, all of those are in general part of this ensemble that put preferences and technology together to generate the outcomes that we care about. And broadly speaking, we could refer to these as institutions, we could refer to them as something else, but by institutions generally that's what we mean. And they have a life of their own. Not only do they matter, they also change. They change in response to the distribution of political power in society, they change in response to technology, they change in response to political demands coming from various quarters in society. And I think generally trying to formulate strong laws of how the capitalist system is going to evolve. Not that I am a big fan of the word capitalism, by the way, but uh, that those laws are generally formulated for capitalism. That those sorts of laws generally ignore the role of institutions, both their impact, but even more importantly, their endogenous evolution because institutions make these sort of simplistic predictions much harder because they mediate how these different sides of the market come together. Now, before we go any any uh, further, I, I want to defend Piketty, and then we'll get into the details. And that's it's kind of a thrill for me. I don't get to defend him very often. So I, I would argue that in his book, he talks a reasonable amount about institutions – in fact, while I was reading his book, uh, I knew that I was going to be interviewing you, and I came across a couple of quotes that suggested he was at least sympathetic to your approach. I'm going to read one of them. Quote, in order to understand the dynamics of wage inequality, we must introduce other factors, such as the institutions and rules that govern the operation of the labor market in each society. To an even greater extent than other markets, the labor market is not a mathematical abstraction whose workings are entirely determined 
by natural and immutable mechanisms and implacable technological forces. It is a social construct based on specific rules and compromises. I would argue that you could have written that paragraph, more or less. Uh, and, right. he, and he has a few others like that. It's not the only one. There are not a lot of them. But how would you defend your critique against that, uh, that quote? No, I think, you know, uh, what I should say, and, and we should be more explicit about this, is not that Thomas or Thomas generally ignores all sorts of factors other than capital and labor, but that these are not an integral part of the main arguments of his theory in the same way that they weren't part of the main arguments of Marx's theory. I mean, at some level, you can read Marx as a formulation of many important institutional dimensions of society. But when it comes to it, at the end, Marx's predictions are very much derived by abstracting from the various different effects of these institutional factors. So in particular, if you take all of the statements that Thomas makes, which includes what you have just read, or in other places he puts a lot of emphasis on minimum wages, for example, Correct. or sometimes on taxes, you know, you would say, yeah, all right, of course there are, you know, he is uh, he's suitably sort of uh, uh, cautious in, 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 in these things. But at the end of the day, the major predictions, the major force of his approach, which is that, you know, it's going to be the gap between the interest rate and the growth rate that's going to determine both the capital share and inequality in society. And these are the major forces that we have to understand about the survival or stability of the capitalist system. I think it's, that's where, you know, institutions have make, make no appearance. And whenever institutions are sort of mentioned, such as, you know, wealth taxes or sometimes in the context form of social norms that regulate the pay of the super managers, etc., they are very much a, an outside construct. They're not part of what is changing and what needs to be explained in some sense. And, and that's what I am sort of, uh, sort of drawing the, we are sort of drawing the parallel to Marx where, again, although there is an, an important institutional element in Marx, in particular, you know, his view of, uh, uh, you know, the communist economy is an institutional one at some level. There's going to be a change from the capitalist to the communist or socialist to the, com and then to the communist. But, but his understanding or his, his explanation of how the capitalist system works in some sense is largely determined by some fundamental economic and accumulation forces. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think uh, I, I think there's there's some thoughtful analysis along the way, but when it comes to the bottom line, it gets sort of pushed away um, or ignored or unemphasized. And I think that's that's part of the problem with the book. It's not my main problem with the book, but um, let's continue. I want to go back a little bit. I want to start with Marx because, uh, as you do point out, Piketty's book is a, in some sense, there's certainly a wink, if not a nod, to Marx uh, in, the <laughs> in the title. The title of his book is Capital in the 21st Century. Uh, and Marx's book, of course, was called Das Kapital. Uh, so there, there, there is a, a certainly an, a, a and, he, and he writes a lot about Marx in the book. He, he certainly sees himself in that tradition, that grand tradition 
not just focusing on capital, but also in in deriving general rules. So I thought it'd be useful for certainly for me and for our listeners to hear what were Marx's general rules and what went wrong with them. Well, I mean, I think Marx, much more than Piketty, had a very complex social theory. He developed over many, 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 many writings, and then you know put together in various different volumes. Uh, most importantly, the Das Kapital, the first volume, and then posthumously, somewhat some of them in, 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 uh, by Engels, and then you know his Engels and Marx cooperation. So anything you're going to say about Marx is going to be a simplification. And but but I think you know doing that simplification, going al- along with that simplification, you know I would say that Marx had a conception which, in my opinion, in, uh, in my and James's opinion, minimized institutions' roles in two different ways. The first one is that his overall conception of how the social, political, and economic outcomes were determined was a very materialistic one, in which, although in some of his works, for example, most notably in the 18th Brumaire, he, did, he does talk about you know, autonomous political factors and... Uh, so the uh, the coup of uh, of Bonaparte, etc. You know, at the end of the day, he had a conception in which the base, the economic relations, determined everything else. So, though it is important, according to Marx, to talk about political factors, those are very much shaped by the economic currents of the time and technology. And taking his cue from this overall framework for historical materialism, if you want to think of it, or a simplified version of historical materialism, he did articulate several strong predictions or tendencies about how the capitalist system would work. In the paper, we emphasize three of those. You know, one of them is the sort of the general law of capitalist accumulation as he viewed it, uh, which is about what's going to happen to real wages. Here, Marx is a little a little less than fully specific. He does sometimes talk about real wages being stand, uh, stagnant so that all improvements in output and productivity go to capital, and sometimes a weaker form where you know, the share of national income captured by labor declining over time, even if wages could increase from time to time. He does then talk about something else that's very, very well known in in Marxist economics, the general law of declining profits. And then later, uh, he also talks about the general law of decreasing competition, which is, you know, the move towards monopoly capitalism, another one of the themes that post-Marxian economists have, you know, emphasized a lot. And those predictions um, didn't turn out so well. Why not? They did not. They did not. And I think, you know, the first one we know best, uh, you know, in fact, Marx wasn't totally off target when he was writing. When he was writing, one of the most challenging things that people were aware, even if they did not have high quality data that we now have access to, is that You know, there were a lot of things going on in the economy. The technological infrastructure of the economy was being totally revolutionized. 
and there were big corporate, you know, there were, there were big monies being made by certain investors and corporations, but wages were stagnant or perhaps even not doing so well for certain portions of the population. So out of this, Marx said, you know, look, you know, labor is not going to benefit from all of these things because this is all part of the nature of the capitalist. But, you know, that was happening in a given particular political, social, and technological context. The political and the social is actually very important because when this was taking place, the balance of power in society was still very much a remnant of the old feudal time. You know, uh, democracy was certainly sort of beginning to develop in uh, Britain with the first Reform Act, but was in a very, very embryonic form, was certainly not very active, and there wasn't representation in much of the rest of the continent. And over time, so this balance of power started changing with greater democracy, greater franchise, greater representation, better organized labor, all sorts of regulations that changed how the pie would actually be divided. But even more importantly, the social and the political context determined the two most important factors shaping wages, human capital and technology. Together with these institutional, political institutional changes came a whole revolutionary set of changes in the education system. So education ceased to be an elite activity for the sons and daughters of the very prosperous, privileged part of the society. Mostly the sons. <laughs> the sons, yes, that's yeah. right. Sons. At that, at so, that yeah, time, absolutely. mostly the sons. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, yes, uh, sons. That's what I should have said. Uh, and and became basically available to the masses, although the whole sort of mass schooling movement in Europe and Britain did take a good part of the 19th century. And this was part of the super rapid increase in the supply of during the 19th century, unprecedented relative to the past. Not that there weren't some very specialized skills. You know, uh, the British uh, artisans were very skilled. There were, you know, pockets of highly skilled uh, artisans and, uh, and, and and specialized workers in continental Europe. But the whole sort of workforce became much more educated. And then, secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, for wages. The general environment, the institutional general, general institutional environment, continued to support the creation of better and better technologies and the scaling up of the employers that were willing to use that technology because they could outcompete their competitors, the incumbents in many cases, without very strong protection for these incumbents from the political. Uh, powers, some big change in some sense from the 18th century, for example, and with their ability to borrow in the financial markets, to patent and use and sell their innovations. So the whole sort of infrastructure of what we now view as the market economy got formed and developed in much of the 19th century. And as this happened, 
the demand for labor increased, the demand for skilled labor increased, and all of these things kept pushing wages up. And in fact, you know, to somebody writing, you know, without so much reference to Marx, but just writing about trends in the, you know, second half of the 20th century, the most remarkable thing would have been the very steady increase in living standards over the last 100 years. Correct. And I think, uh, let me, um, I'm going to push against both Piketty and your analysis. It seems to me that overwhelmingly that rise in the, in the living standards is due to two factors, three, uh, maybe two and a half. And then I'll let you add, and then I'm going to see how much you think is left for institutions. So we have, we have the technological change, which is, of course, mm-hmm. in, it's in its, itself is endogenous. It's not, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of hand-waving to suggest it just sort of happens. That, mm-hmm. that technological change certainly, as it goes along, requires for it to continue the application of capital. Mm-hmm. And that capital accumulation, which leads to technological change, leads to enormous improvements in productivity. And then the question becomes for the Marxist – why doesn't capital retain all the profit that it could? And I would answer that the main reason it doesn't isn't institutional. It's merely competition. Now, that is that is competition among profit seekers, entrepreneurs, corporations, et cetera, forces them to share the gains with consumers and in turn with workers in competition to acquire both customers and workers. Now, I will accept the argument. I'll let you flesh it out unless you want to push it in a different direction that institutions determine how that competition plays out. Certainly that's true. But I think it, that that role of competition enforcing – that's the right word. I don't think it's the best word, but it's the only one I've got – forcing uh, capitalists to share that bounty of that higher productivity with the general public is the story of 1850 to 2014, even in the middle of this recession – and I'm I'm curious what you think. So I think Piketty totally. What I don't understand about Piketty, and we can talk about this later, is capital to, to me seems to be a crucial ingredient in in the standard of living of the masses. And I don't understand how wars, which lower the uh, amount of capital, are therefore good for the rest of us. But even though they're bad for the top one percent, I think they're bad for all of us. Uh, not just the fact that people die, but because it does destroy capital. But but just on your argument. Where, what's the role for institutions in my story? What am I missing? Okay, so uh, I think you've got it absolutely right. I am 100% agreeing with you, which is that what happened from 1850 is that technology moved apace. Human capital improved. Technology and human capital together created more and more demand for labor which push up the marginal product of labor, and because labor markets were increasingly quasi-competitive, let's say, and I wouldn't go to say as far as saying they were competitive. I don't know. I don't know what that word. Like, I don't know what that word means, right? Wait, wait, what competitive. It, means it doesn't not, mean. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that wages were equal to the value of marginal product of, of labor, course. but they were. They were scaling up with the value of marginal product yep. of labor. Okay. So these factors together explain why the share of labor essentially remained constant and together with GDP wages increased and in some places actually share of labor increased faster than GDP. But what I disagree with you is the counterfactual. You're making the statement 
conditional on the institutions, in particular labor market institutions, supported by the political institutions, as we saw in the uh, in, 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 in the United Kingdom and in continent, parts of continental Europe. But those labor market institutions, supported by the specific social and political institutions of that time, were actually the exception in human history. And if you think about how labor markets worked in much of continental Europe before and at the time of the French Revolution, in the UK actually, in the 17th century, in 16th century, it would have been very, very different. And for instance, take places in which there was labor coercion. At the time where this was happening, or you know, uh, shortly before then, you still had labor coercion in many different parts of the world. And in, in those parts of the world, there were huge swings in the improvements in the value marginal product of labor. For example, you had sugar prices fluctuate a lot. In, uh, and, and improve and, and increase the value of marginal product of laborers and slaves in Jamaica and Cuba and Haiti. That did not translate into increases in the wages of labor. Great it's point. An extreme example. Yeah, great but point. That didn't go because this was not in the context of a market economy. The key thing, and that's the institutional part, and that's why I think it's very important when I say the Marxist theory and Piketty's theory don't have a role for, don't, don't have an organic role for institutions. I really mean the evolution of institutions also. So the crucial part is that these institutional structures, the, what was going on in the labor market, the representation of labor, the, the chartist movement, and then the trade unions in the UK that represented the, 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 the labor's interest, developed together with these more competitive, quasi-competitive markets and led to an equitable distribution of the gains from economic growth, they would not have that, those same gains would not have been distributed equitably if Europe still had the institutions of the 1700s or, uh, or the 1600s. Fair enough. And that's a great point. Um, I, I, I do have a question though about modern uh, improvements in standard of living. I used to ask when I would teach non-economists, law students or law professors uh, or journalists, I would ask, or judges, I would ask them, why is our standard of living in America higher than Mexico's? And I would often get the answer because we have a minimum wage and they don't. And yeah, don't don't laugh, don't laugh. It's a com it's a common answer, and it it's not a bad answer if you haven't thought about it a lot. And I would never laugh out loud. I want to say on record when I heard that because. It, but the reason you laugh is that it's that argument's very hard to sustain. There's not a lot of evidence for it. A similar argument. You and I would, don't mean to laugh. In that you know, I think I think if you want to explain why is it that certain Types of workers in the United States have much lower wages than those workers in in in, in France. Minimum wages is an excellent yes, answer. That's correct. But I think before you can get there, you need to have a much more, much greater institutional parity, as you do have, you know, with some important differences and distinctions between France and and United States, and that brings more greater technological parity. But you know, when you're comparing. You know, Mexico to the United States or Peru to the Not United work. States. Not going to work. Know, there are so much first, yes. much more important first order factors. Right, but the next argument you would hear is that uh, we have unions and they don't. And I think there's that's a commonly held. Let me make the argument more generally. When you ask what, why was the 20th century so great in America overall, despite uh, a horrible depression, two world wars, you know, lots of challenges. Why did it turn out so well? There are a lot of people who believe that it was the social legislation of the New Deal 
the minimum wage, Social Security, uh, certain bargaining laws for for labor, uh, Robinson Patman, other types of of innovations. I think I have that. I hope I have that right in terms of the timing. That that's that a lot that forced uh, capital to share the gains with labor. And I just I just don't see that argument empirically. I understand the argument. I understand the the the, the idea behind it. I think empirically, it's very hard to sustain that. Do you agree? Well, I disagree and I agree. So I think my view is that, you know, think of it this way. So here is, here is I'm going to caricaturize my own view, but I think this is useful. So you talked of the competitive labor markets, okay? So I think that the competitive labor markets are actually quite difficult to sustain. Nobody actually has an interest in competitive labor markets. Everybody would like to be a monopolist. Everybody would like to be to form coalitions with their friends and the, other, the people with whom they have some overlapping economic interests. And with those coalitions, force for certain non-competitive elements. So at some points in human history, you're going to find yourself close to the extreme of the slavery system that I just mentioned, where coercion is very strong. And even when coercion is not as strong, there is huge imbalance of power because employers are monopsonistic, workers are in poverty or are being forced into poverty. You know, for example, as in South Africa before the fall of apartheid, not just that you have coercion, which was which apartheid did exploit it, but it also apartheid as part of its existence reorganized the entire labor force pushed workers into the, the Bantustans, in, into places where they could not survive on agriculture so that they would become cheaper labor for mines or for other white-controlled employers. In other periods, you're going to have, as you have, uh, in, in, you, have you've had, you know, it's getting a little weaker, but in parts of continental Europe where unions are going to be so strong and employers are going to be so weak, so now you're going to have a situation in which you know, unions are going to be able to push for excessively high wages for the benefit of their own members at the expense of other workers and at the expense of capital innovation in the economy. So, therefore, I cannot answer the question as to whether unions are good for the functioning of the market economy or not. It really depends on what side of this trade-off we are or what side of this sort of balance we are. So if we are on the side of the balance where we were, in the, at the end of the 18th century, then I think it was important for the labor movement to play an important role to balance that out. If you are where you were, you know, in Portugal, for example, in uh, in, the, in the end of the 1990s, you know, perhaps it well, it is good for unions to become uh, sort of less able to push for innovation curtailing and and, and business sort of killing high wages. So it really is a balance on, on where you are. So, so I think, do I believe that it, is, it was important for Britain to have its labor movement become more uh, well-organized, more powerful at the, in the sort of the mid-19th century? Yes. Do I think that it was important for the U.S. for labor to become a little bit organized, never became as organized, but at the beginning of the 20th century so that uh, some of the worst abuses, especially in terms of safety and uh, 
and child labor and, and, and other things that were going on in, in, in some marginal parts of the labor market, but not unimportant but, but uh, parts of the labor market in the United States, I think those were important. But I also don't think that you can generalize this to say that everywhere and under all circumstances, you should push for stronger unions, and nor do I believe that the minimum wage or the sort of the social security legislation per se were that important for understanding the development of wages, development of living conditions in the United States, as you have already hinted at. So one of the reasons I like talking to you is that you make me think about these things and you challenge my preconceptions. So I'm going to give you one more and then we'll, then we'll move on because I find this extremely interesting. So, uh, and I take your point about balance, but here's my puzzle. I have a cleaning woman who comes to my house with a crew of three people uh, once a week. And the three people, she speaks pretty good English. Uh, the three people she brings, they don't speak English very well. They don't have a union. Uh, their bargaining power is seems to me very limited in the way that bargaining power is talked about as an important part of labor market outcomes. They make a little over uh, $23, $24 an hour, which is about it's roughly three times the federal minimum wage. I don't know what the state minimum wage these, is. These ladies, ladies yeah. do $23. Yeah, wow, each one. That's very good for Well, that's what wow, you get. Great. Well, it's hard to clean a house. It's hard to show up every time, every week on time. It's not pleasant work particularly. But if you do it well and you do it diligently, you make, you know, get any benefits. Not, it's not great. It's hard to work 2,000 hours a year doing it. You have travel time between things. It's not it's not great, but their kids can go to college, actually, in the United States, which is unbelievable. Uh, it's hard for them to get into more expensive ones sometimes or to be able to afford them. But they have a very different life here than they have in the countries that they came from. And the question I always ask is, why do I pay them three times the minimum wage? And it's not because I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I wish it were. I like to think I'm a nice guy. But I pay them three times the minimum wage because if I don't, they don't come to my house. They have better alternatives. So to me, competition, all this stuff about bargaining power and in institutions, I don't see why it's so relevant. It seems to me that, that the technology, I'm going to come back to my original point, the supply and demand thing kind of powers through a lot of things. Okay. So I think in your labor market, it might turn out that way, that $23 an hour, there are so many employers that are individually willing to hire these ladies you know, competition is taking care of it. I think in many parts of the United States, despite the fact that the United States is as close as one gets to that, you know, peak of the balance that I just described, I would worry that the, the head lady will charge you well, she may take a disproportionate an hour. I'm sure she takes a disproportionate share. I don't, I don't think and she then, divides and it then equally. We'll give, we'll give each one of the other ladies $6. Yep, that could be. By the way, she drives, and, she drives a nicer car than I do. And that, that's because they are afraid that if they object to that, they are illegal or they have some other reasons to be afraid. And she's going to either drop them entirely or she's going to complain about them to the authorities. So they are in a very, very unequal, difficult bargaining position. And that the $100 that you are spending actually gets captured by the intermediary. And in fact, if there were better safety laws, perhaps these ladies would be compensated for doing some of the difficult 
job or if there was miraculously a better system in which you know people could not be taken advantage of in that way their wages would be closer to to the true value of their marginal product and as a result they would work even harder they would be even more efficient and there would be a, even a more liquid market you know one could tell stories i don't know how the labor market in your yeah, area, sure cleaning ladies in your area works but i think the issue is that there are many pockets, even as an, in, a, in a, as modern economy as the United States, in which still in this day and age where, uh, you know, we are very sensitive to these issues, still there are unequal labor relations. And then you go to, you know, in the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia, where migrant workers, you know, who are paid so much better than they would have been paid had they stayed in Bangladesh or Pakistan or the Philippines still are highly abused. And, you know, you can always say, well, you know, labor demand and technology are going to take care of it. Uh, but but it, it's a very slow process and sometimes it doesn't because the regulation, political power, money is all of them are on the side of the wealthy sheikhs and princes in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So, you know, it's a very, very unequal sort of uh, fight between or unequal sort of economic struggle between the uh, migrant workers and, and, and their wealthy, powerful employers. I suspect that the labor market for cleaning people in the Boston area is very similar. But, we'll, but I take your point, especially with respect to how they're compensated within the group. I've, I, don't, I don't know. I, might, I may try to find out. Let, let's move on to Piketty. Well, let me know if you do. Yeah, I will. Let, let's, <laughs> let's move on to Piketty. So... Uh, Piketty has some general claims, and you talk about about some of them in the paper that are a little bit on the technical side and don't lend themselves very well to audio. So I'm going to leave those out. I'm going to focus on the big one. So his biggest claim, the one that he is, that's the centerpiece of the book, is what he calls the central contradiction of capitalism, which is that the rate of return on capital, which he calls R, uh, is is going to almost always or often is going to be greater than G, which is the rate of growth rate of the economy as a whole. And therefore, holders of capital will see their well-being rise at a faster rate than the rest of the economy, and therefore inequality will grow inexorably. So is that a fair summary, do you think, of his work? And I think then, it's a very fair, very, and, it's a very fair summary. So what's wrong with it? It sounds, it sounds like a math, he, he treats it often as if it's just a mathematical truth. Uh, right. what's, what's wrong with it? Well, I think there are several things wrong with it. I will classify them into four things that are wrong with it. The first one is that the fundamental contradiction of capitalism is actually something that's implied by economic efficiency. So, in fact, you know, I think calling it a central contradiction of capitalism does create a little bit of a sort of a smoke and mirrors sort of thing. I'll come to that. Second, that to see this as an inexorable producer of inequality is at least theoretically, and I'll come back to the empirical part, wrong because R, R, the interest rate, could be greater than G, and that might still be consistent with stable inequality, decreasing inequality, lower inequality, and so on. Third, in focusing on R minus G, in my opinion, you are really leaving out all of the more important determinants of inequality, all the institutional ones that we have already talked about, or, or those that are sort of 
come from other aspects of institutions, such as social mobility, for example, which I think is central. And then fourth, empirically, R minus G doesn't do so much of a great job in explaining inequality or inequality trends. So, so those are the four things. So let's, Should I yeah, run let's through go. Them? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So first of all, R minus G. Actually, you know, there is, you know, this is a small point, but let me start with it. And this is a technical point, but I think it's an important one. You know, in, in economics, in growth theory, we call economies that do not satisfy R greater than G dynamically inefficient economies because there is something fundamentally distorted about them. And in particular, if R were ever less or equal to G, less than G, let's take the case less than G, then you could actually make everybody better off in the economy without making anybody else worse off. And that fundamentally, the problem is that How? if R is less than G, that means you are not properly compensating people for saving, which is an important economic activity. And as a result, the economy generates too much capital. So R minus G is a situation in which the economy has excessive amounts of capital. And it would be better for everybody else if it actually consumed some of that capital. And so dynamic efficiency, what we sort of impose or expect the market economy to generate under fairly weak conditions, immediately leads to R greater than G. So rather than being a sort of a newly discovered fundamental fault line of the market economy or the capitalist economy, R minus G is exactly what market economy should generate and generally does generate, although there are periods in which the economies do go through dynamically inefficient periods. Okay, so then I'm going to take you off track for a minute. We may come back to the other three, but if it's actually a good sign for productivity and for the size of the pie, which is what dynamic efficiency is getting at, that phrase, if it's good for the growth of the size of the pie, that R is greater than G, doesn't that mean that people who hold capital will see their nest egg, their savings growing at a very high rate? And I'm just a poor wage earner. I'm just growing at a rate G. If I'm lucky, I'm getting in Piketty's story, you know, international growth averages, you know, sometimes it's higher, but in, in the developed economies, it's usually between two and three percent. That includes population growth. So productivity grows one to two percent. And so that's the best I can hope for as a worker. I get a little a little boost throughout my life. But somebody who inherits money, they're getting R, so they're growing at a bigger rate, five percent, seven percent. Uh, doesn't that mean that the distance between the wage earner and the and the holder of 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 capital is going to grow and grow and grow and over generations get even worse? So that's exactly my second point. So so the first one was you know R minus G is is actually uh, should be positive and uh, and that's like basic economic theory we teach to all of our students. And the second point is that that R minus G being positive doesn't actually imply increasing inequality. Yes. You're right, and, and, and Tomas is right. And Tomas, of course, knows all of these things, and, and, and in, in parts of the book, he suitably caveats them. But, but, but you know, let's take the most extreme version of the Picatist position rather than Piketty's position, which would be, yes, R minus G is positive. That means that capital earners are going to have, you know, much, 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 much higher rates of uh, economic, faster rates of 
growth of their wealth than than workers. Well, that doesn't follow. That doesn't follow for several reasons. First of all, it it's the case that not everybody is a capital owner all of the time. So many people are saving for life cycle reasons or across generations they're saving to pass on to their kids who are going to have lower earning potential. And if that's the case, you are not going to have that the translation of, you're not going to have a direct translation of the rate of return on capital to the wealth of the capital owners next period. Plus, the more general point is that social mobility breaks this link between uh, between return to capital and where the capital owners are going to be. And social mobility here, I'm taking it a little bit broader than what we normally mean, which is just by social mobility, we normally mean social intergenerational mobility. But, you know, and we have, we have quite a bit of that in, in, in advanced economies. But here, I actually mean even more than that, the fact that, you know, in your 40s, you're going to be a very high earner. And then, you know, in your 60s, you're going to live off the uh, savings that you accumulated during your working years. So all of those together imply that the link between, you know, the, the gap between R and G and rising, inexorably rising wealth inequality is, is tenuous at best. Well, let me extend your point, which is something we didn't talk about when I discussed this with, with Piketty, which is, of course, everyday people own stock as well. They have access to R through mutual funds. I mean, because of uh, one of the probably the most, uh, you know, many of my guests change the world in all kinds of ways. But but I interviewed Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. And what he did is he democratized access to capital through Vanguard's index mutual funds. It's an incredible revolution, really. And it's true that not every single worker has access to it, but many, many do, and certainly more than in, say, 50 years ago. And that's a, a wonderful thing. So Piketty ignores that. Of course, the other thing he ignores is that as as Bogle would point out, if you take what's called a buy and hold strategy and you buy a broad-based mutual fund, whether it's Vanguard's or somebody else's, you will do very well. You will earn the so-called market rate of return, pre-tax, of course, right. and you have to pay taxes on it, thing Piketty often ignores. But pre-tax, you're going to earn that rate. Very few people's portfolios grow at that rate. For one reason, they diversify. They buy other things that are safer because there's risk in R, which – is also often ignored. And secondly, uh, they make mistakes. They they get over enthusiastic about return. They try to time the market. They waste a lot of money in fees. And we see the empirical evidence for this is it's overwhelming. You'd have to do a study. You just have to look at what happens to rich people over time. They don't stay so rich. Not just them themselves they themselves, but their families darn us over time, over generations. I think that that second important that's, that's the important point. This is the second one you've made. Because I think I think Thomas is actually quite aware that now that point, but he has a comeback to that, which is he, he would say and he does emphasize this in the book, although he doesn't articulate the criticism, but he does respond to it at some level. He says capital income is very unequally held. So so capital is very unequally held. So capital income, you know, yes, sure, you know, the uh the average worker does hold some stocks through uh, Charles Schwab or Vanguard, but but you know the 
It's the it's a small the amount. Very, very wealthy it's not, who have, and it's not a hedge fund. Can't get the returns that hedge funds get. Of course, many right. hedge funds go broke. But it's just, even if they were, if, even if they were to get the same return, you know, they hold. They start with know, a smaller bottom, amount. Ninety-nine yeah. percent would hold, you know, fifty percent, sixty percent of the of the capital stock, according to sort of uh, uh, this this view, and then the top. One percent would hold forty percent, and then of course you know the uh, return on capital would disproportionately could go to the top one percent. But the key thing is that who is in that top one percent? If you look at who is in that top one percent, that changes over time. The people who are in the top one percent today, many, a large fraction of them were not in this top one percent thirty years ago. Yeah, his answer to that is I, I don't fully understand that. I, I pointed that out to him. His answer is that, uh, but the rate at the, when he points out that the rate of growth of the top 1% is growing, I say it's not the same people. And he still says, oh, but this can't go on forever. It's going to eventually that, you know, even if the people are continually leapfrogging each other, I think he, he views it as somehow alarming that at some point in the future, the people, whoever they are in the top 1%, will have too much political and economic power. Well, that's a different point. And we'll come back to that. And then I want to come back also to this issue uh, there is a little sleight of hand there, which is when, you know, again, I, I'm not sure whether I'm reading all of Thomas' statements accurately, but if my reading is accurate, you know, he's he's saying, look, you know, capital is so important, capital is back, capital is going to be the driver, but actually he's quite well aware, and his data from both the United States and France quite clearly show that the increase in inequality is not a capital phenomenon. It's a labor income phenomenon. So therefore, what he's saying is that, sure, it might be that it's been labor income that's been driving the increase in inequality over the last 50 years to an extent that we had not seen in the beginning of the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century or the 19th century. But it remains to be the case, it, it remains the case that in the future, it will be capital that dominates. Great summary. But we don't have yeah. any evidence for that. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's exactly what's right or wrong about his uh, analysis. It's um, I, with the caveat, as my listeners know, that I think the rise in labor inequality is grossly overstated because of demographic changes in the United States, because the analysis is households, not individuals. And there's been big changes in household formation and, and destruction because of divorce and, a, and delay to marriage date. And as a result, when we see that trend, it overstates the actual trend. But that's, let's put that to the side because that's a, that's a mm -hmm. statistical issue. Let me get to a different point about the labor income inequality. You can come back and make whatever point you were going to make. I apologize. But you fault, okay, yeah, sure. you fault him. You, run, you get to run this. You, you can take <laughs> whatever you want. I try not to take too much advantage of it. Um, but you're very polite. Uh, you fault him for just, quote, presenting the data. Uh, he's very, one. I think one of the reasons his book has well, been that, so successful. That's the point I want to make, actually. That's my yeah. fourth point. Make that the, point, the, because fourth, fourth on, the, on the surface, that seems like a, it's a selling point. All he does is just, just the facts, ma'am. Just, just the facts. Yeah. Well, let's, let's come back to that. So, so can I, can, let, 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 let me co cover the third one yeah, go ahead. Uh, very briefly, and then we can come to the fourth one, which is essentially the one, the one that you're making. And then the third one is that even if you ignore sort of the, the, the first two points that I made, or if you take account of them, but think they're not, you know, uh, they're not, you know, they're not, of course, the end of the world for, for this sort of point of view. But, but this point of view ignores the fact that there are so many other important determinants of 
inequality, then R minus G. And we try to, in the paper, we try to illustrate that, for example, with the trends in inequality in Sweden and South Africa, you know, and, and you know, you can see quite easily there are huge changes in inequality in both of the countries over the, the, the 20th, 20th century, but none of it is related to R minus G. None of it is related to wars or the destruction of capital stock. They are all deeply institutional. They're, they're related to the formation of the social welfare state in Sweden. They're related to the nature of the apartheid regime, which was, you know, held black wages down, but redistributed among whites, and then the collapse of the apartheid regime, and so on and so forth. So, so that's the third one, which is that, you know, uh, you know, the focus on R minus G is, might sort of involve throwing the baby with the bathwater, that the really interesting stuff is left out. And then the fourth one is exactly the point that you made, which is, okay, what does the data show? So Thomas is doing a fantastic job of digging new data that is quite informative on a set of questions about economics of inequality. Together with Emmanuel Saez and Tony Atkinson and a number of other researchers, he's been at the forefront of using tax returns data to shed new light on age-old questions of inequality among economists and labor economists. But the literature has always been a very empirical literature, which is that if you make a claim, then you look at the data, not just in terms of descriptive statistics, but you also provide the relevant quote-unquote correlations or the regressions. And, uh, you know, first starting with ordinary least squares regressions that sort of document what the correlations are. And then you worry about causality, you know, what causes, is it really X causing Y or Z causing X and Y or Y causing X? So, so it's some some, somehow, surprisingly, at some level, Thomas never does that. He sort of lays out the data, and he's like, here are really interesting patterns. And I go with him totally. These are really interesting patterns. And he gets full credit for bringing those patterns to the, uh, to the attention of, uh, of, of millions. But on the other hand, he then takes the next step, and he says, well, here are the patterns, and then these are explained by R minus G being positive, and here they are, they are explained by, by the world wars, and here they are. Have we done the cross-country correlation, overtime correlation, or across-households correlations or regressions? He never takes that step. And then when you actually look at the data, for example, you do a very, very simple sort of correlational analysis and you say, well, is it really true that you know, uh, in years or five-year periods or decades during which R is greater than G, inequality increases? No, the data don't show that. So the data are quite clear that there doesn't seem to be a big correlation out there between R minus G and inequality, a top income share or anything like that. So I'm going to come back to that because I think that's the central, I think that's extremely, it's a beautiful point. It's really what economics is, is all about. It's about complexity and the challenges of trying to parse out causation, which I think we are, we have mixed success at, but before we do that, I just want to let you make one more comment about something else you note in the paper, which is you you fault him for focusing on the top 1%. What's wrong with that? Isn't that important? What, what's your critique Oh, there? it's absolutely important. It's absolutely, absolutely important. But it's one of the many important things. Again, let me give the example of South Africa. You know, South Africa is a case study in inequality. One of the most unequal countries in the, in the world. It's been so for quite a while. 
But it's not about the top 1%. It's about blacks versus the rest of society or whites versus blacks and colors throughout the uh, apartheid period. And, you know, this is just like a beautiful political economy analysis. Every aspect of South African society, from marriage to education, from labor market laws to political representation, they're all designed in order to keep blacks relatively poor economically and make sure that whites get the lion's share of economic gain. But you're not going to see that with the top 1%. In fact, top 1% share declines throughout the period of the apartheid. So if you just looked at the top 1%, you'll say, well, this economy is doing well. The its elites must be getting weaker over time. Yeah, part of that is the is this a presum, a sort of a presumed focus on a zero-sum game, which I think is just, yeah, as you, of course, would point out, and as he would point out, he understands it's not a zero-sum game. But when you talk about shares relentlessly, you tend to get people's minds focused on it being a zero-sum game, and therefore right. you tend to make you tend to miss some things. But let's. But I think there's one aspect in which I think Thomas is right. Thomas is right that we should, you know, as well as things like you know, poverty. What's the top? What's the bottom ten percent? How the bottom ten percent is doing? Well, how is the median, the Gini coefficient, which you know Thomas hates, but you know it's still a useful diagnostic. Uh, as well as all of those, we should look at the top 1%, both because it's the many different dimensions of inequality that we should keep track. But there is an important element about top 1%, which you know, might, rise, might uh, sort of, uh, ring alarm bells in our minds, which is that it is possibly, probably, probably related to how dominant the economic elites in society are. So if you have that the share of top 1% is increasing very rapidly, it is right for us to worry about as social scientists and for journalists to worry about as they're in their investigative journalism role about whether the society is being increasingly dominated politically, socially, and economically by a very small fraction of the population. So, for example, if the top 1% is becoming very, very rich at the same time as somehow, you know, does sounds have some eerie relevance to the United States, if somehow money becomes more and more dominant in politics, then you may actually worry about it. And you might say, well, you know, top 1% share increased from 15% to 30%. And around that time, a lot of that money started flowing into politics. And then, you know, people like Sheldon, Sheldon Adelson are able to sort of finance uh, particular candidates and then, you know, with very clear economic agendas about how gambling should be treated, et cetera, well, that, 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 could, that could be something, you know, quite, quite problematic for the society. It could be quite dangerous for society. So, so we, should, we should actually think about this. But, but as, as my kind of explanation here suggests, then we should really worry about the political and institutional aspects of it, not just, you know, look at what's going on in the tax returns, but really think about the resilience of the institutions, which are the fault lines of the institutions and so on. Well, you know, when you talked earlier, we're almost out of time. I want to bring us back to the beginning of your conversation and I'll let you close this out. But you talked earlier, you said, uh, you know, it was ironic. You didn't say it was ironic, but I was thinking it was ironic that Marx was writing at a time when wages were stagnant. So he saw that, that he probably, he presumed that tomorrow was going to be like today which is like yesterday, and therefore there was going to be this perpetual stagnation. And he, of course, was writing this on the verge 
on the cusp of the greatest leap in individual living standards that human history has ever seen. Kind of ironic. I, I remember being in graduate school in the 1970s when very wise people whose names I won't mention explained how Microsoft, excuse me, IBM, I'm, I'm two generations ahead, one generation ahead, how IBM is a threat because they have a monopoly. This was a, a, you know, in a very long-running Department of Justice case that pretty much by the time it finished, IBM was almost irrelevant in the markets that, that were being discussed. And then we were told that Microsoft was a monopoly. And, suddenly, and of course, that, that also was a long-running case that turned out by the time it was done to be totally irrelevant. And you wonder whether people who make these grand pronouncements are doing so right at the time when reality and, and other market forces, other factors that are not observed. It's called, it's called mean reversion or Galton's fallacy. Yeah, that, that's, I guess thank you for, for giving it a little bit of air of, of sophistication. But having said all that, you, I know, are worried about inequality. I'm not so much. I am worried about the political part. I am worried about, say, the financial sector directing resources to itself. I think there is some inequality that's very bad. But I'm much more worried about opportunity. I'm much more worried about anti-poverty. And I'm much less worried about people who get really rich providing things that really make a lot of people happy. So tell me where you stand on this issue. Do you think well, – I think, I think my view is not actually that different, but I think probably the, uh, the emphasis is a little different. So I think it's very useful to distinguish three roles of inequality or three sorts of uh, uh, judgments that one can and – should sort of have about inequality. One is holding everything else equal. How bad is it that the allocation of resources in the economy is more unequal? So do a thought experiment. We hold everything else the same, but then we take a little bit of money from everybody below the 90th percentile and again give those monies to the people above the 90th percentile. What is, what is our economic judgment on? Well, I think most people would be, you know, that's not a good thing. You know, you'll have some egalitarian uh, judgments and so on. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, you might, you might have a social welfare function, you know, with diminishing returns in it that, you know, once somebody has a lot already, you don't want them to get more, et cetera. But, but in general, of course, in reality, not everything else is held the same. You know, when you sort of increasing equality, you also encourage certain types of activities more, certain types of activities less. So I think we have to take all of these things into account. And I think it's a complex decision. And probably many people would be a little bit against inequality in this, this dimension. Some of them would be very, very against. But, you know, we have to find a way of aggregating these preferences. The second dimension, I think, is much more important. And you've sort of somehow separated that, but I think it's not as separable, which is equality of opportunity. I think most of us, would be very troubled by a economic and political system where if you are born into a rich family, you go to such schools and form such networks and get such a leg up in life that you're always going to be the boss. You're always going to have the most privileged position in life even if you're not talented, even if you haven't worked hard, even if you haven't done anything, just because you are born in the right family. And, and I think the sort of the view that many people have is that as we make inequality greater, we also make this equality of opportunity harder to, to achieve. And 
and I think there is some truth to that. For example, if you look in a world in which there are credit market constraints, then you know you can have easily a situation in which this is, I think, the truth in many reality in many developing countries. Poor people cannot afford to go to school, and poor people live in neighborhoods that don't have schools, villages, or or poor neighborhoods, or they don't have high quality schools. And as a result, social mobility, equality of opportunity, very strongly suffers. And in a situation like that, if you do indeed want social mobility, if you do indeed want equality of opportunity, then it might be one of the important levers to actually try to do something about inequality. But if that's the case, now it's a parenthetical comment, who cares about top 1% inequality? You know, are we going to make equality of opportunity better for blacks in our inner cities who are clearly suffering from this, for Hispanics, for poor people in the least educated, socially, economically, most disadvantaged part of the United States, if we take some money from Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and give it to, the, uh, to, to millionaires so that top 1% mm. decline. Of course, that's totally irrelevant. The right thing to focus on is really poverty. It's really opportunities available to people at the bottom of the income distribution. And top 1% share is quite irrelevant for well, that. It's ironic because Bill Gates, that seems to be my word of this, of this episode. I apologize for overusing it. But it is ironic that in your example, you mentioned Bill Gates. Bill Gates is desperately trying to improve the schooling system. I don't think he's very good at it, but he would love to see smaller inequality by boosting the bottom, as would I think almost everyone in the world. It's a, it's a great idea. We need better a better school system, I think. Uh, but that has nothing to do with the amount of capital that the rich hold uh, or, or the, the power that they have. Right. And then the third, uh, third element is, and then I think you agree on this also, but perhaps you might think about it as a little bit more separable than in income inequality, is political inequality. And I think many people, again, perhaps not everybody, but I think an overwhelming majority of Americans would think that a system in which only a handful of people have political voice and the rest of us are like sheep is not a good system. One man, one vote in reality. Our politicians are accountable and representative to all of us. I think that's the sort of system that we want. And there is a concern, and I think it's a real concern, that... As the rich become richer and richer, unless there are the right sort of institutional checks, competitive elections, open political system, the right sort of punishments and the social norms against political corruption and political backroom deals, I think there's a real danger that the very, very rich might become politically so dominant that they can start tilting the system to their favor. And in the United States, you know, we are seeing some of that. So I think that last element is the one that I already sort of mentioned. That's the one where top 1% is important and we have to watch out for it. But that's a deeply institutional political economy channel. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The, where we might disagree is where I want to see that improve is by limiting the power of government. And the people who tend to be worried about inequality often want to increase the power of government. And I see that as a uh, hopeless strategy. The idea that we can make government more powerful so we can reduce inequality to me is, is, is to be honest, a little bit naive. Well, I think, I think it's uh, – you know, again, I think it's, uh, it depends on the specific historical context that we are in. So you're certainly right. If you're thinking about – exploitation, again, let me go to an extreme case, like the apartheid state or the slavery, slave plantation or the feudal system. You know, government's power is the main method of the wealthy and the powerful to exploit and extract from the rest of us. 
But if you're thinking of the uh, Gilded Age, the end of the so the age of the robber barons, then we have a system there where you know uh, these trusts are so powerful economically and are so able to use the legal system that they crush any opposition. They are able to sort of maintain their monopolies at the at the expense of creating greater entry, greater variety, lower prices for the consumers. So in that case, what you need to do is you need to do standard antitrust regulation. But to be able to do the antitrust regulation, you need the government to become stronger, which is exactly what the progressives actually achieved during that period. You know, I think the biggest achievement of the progressives was not, you know, was the political reform that made the Senate more accountable, but also the whole sort of antitrust apparatus that I think is very important for why Marx's third prediction about increasing concentration did not pan out. I guess I'm a little more skeptical than you are that antitrust legislation does what economists think it does or want it to do. Oh, I mean, I am totally willing to go along with you that antitrust regulation often does get misused, and there are many distortions. But again, in some extreme situations where the economy is becoming hugely monopolized, I think it certainly is a very important tool in the way that society itself will monitor uh, how economic power is used. Well, we're over time. Why don't you close by talking about uh, Piketty's book generally? Do you think it's an important book? I absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, how, you know, how, how could anybody say that it's not an Important book. When you look at the impact that it has had, it's had it's been you know I don't know how many copies it's sold, but you know it must be in the millions, and uh, it has transformed the debate. It has opened new debates. I think it's it's fantastic. I mean, it is true that it sort of became hugely successful partly because it did tap into into a deep angst that people were already having about some of these issues. And, uh, and it is building on, you know, decades of research in labor economics on inequality that, you know, many people, uh, you know, were showing these sort of striking inequality trends that existed in the United States that contrasted with some countries in continental Europe, for example, the contrast between United States and Scandinavia and France. And he built on all of this and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, you know, advanced that debate in, in, in many ways and made lots of people interested in that debate. So there's a lot of things for us economists to sort of write more about. And, you know, that's the spirit in which James and I have written our piece. It's like, it's a really interesting sort of hypothesis that he has. We have to respond to it. And I think all of those are a great service and we should be all grateful to Thomas. But what he's trying to do is a difficult one. And I think that probably is, is, a, is a balance that everybody has to sort of think about what's the optimal balance. You know, he, you know, when many economists, what many economists or social scientists, especially economists do is that, you know, we write academic papers to advance new ideas. And then we write, you know, popular pieces to sort of popularize those ideas or, you know, I have, you know, introduce those ideas to a broader public or policymakers, et cetera. So Thomas tried to do both in the, both in the same volume. And I think there is a tension in there, and it's not clear what part of it is a scientific academic statement about, you know, comparative static or the effect of X on Y empirically, and what part of it is an appeal to 
his readers, his natural readers that, you know, I really think there is something deeply unfair about this. And I really think it's X that's important, even if the data is not there. I think those sort of statements are also fine, you know, but, 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 but when the two are mixed, sometimes I think uh, it's, not, it's not as easy to parse what is what. And that's the spirit in which the institutions are mentioned. Yes, minimum wage is important. The wealth tax is important. But if you look at his theoretical model, they're not at the center of it. And that's what I was trying to say at the beginning. So that's a good point to sort of end it with. My guest today has been Darren Asimoglu of MIT. Darren, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Wow, my pleasure. Thank you very much for doing it. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.